Got 20 minutes? Then you have time for a Bible study. Jesus, name above all names, I worship you. Jesus, you're worthy to be praised. I worship you. Hey, everybody, I'm Andy Baylog. And I'm Jordan Pine. Welcome to another episode of 20 Minute Bible Studies. Today, we're going to talk about fear. Should Christians fear God? Well, Jordan, the answer is obvious, right? The Bible says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And we see that in Proverbs 1.7. And Jesus said, Do not fear those who will kill the body, but are unable to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And by the way, that word in the Greek is Gehenna. And we see that in Matthew 10.28, a verse we explored in a recent episode. The message is clear. We should fear God. Not so fast, Andy. If we should fear God, why does the Bible also say, there is no fear in love, 1 John 4.18, and also tell us that God loves us unconditionally, that's agape, and that Jesus loves us and gave himself for us, Ephesians 5.2. The message from those verses seems to be, we shouldn't fear God because we are loved or beloved, as the apostles called the members of the church. Of course, we're being provocative, but this is the difficulty we face, and some may be tempted to view it as a contradiction. Of course, the answer is always is to go deeper and use scripture to explain scripture. Exactly, Andy. Let's listen now to the word of God. A reading from Apostle John's first letter. John writes, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. We have come to know, and we have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment, because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear, because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. That was 1 John chapter 4, verses 15 to 18. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his word. First, let's use the space method. Space is an acronym that reminds us to consider the SP, speaker, A, audience, and C, context of a Bible reading before attempting an E, explanation. So we see here that the speaker is the Apostle John, and the audience is the churches of Asia Minor, which is today modern-day Turkey. Now, this is the first and largest of three epistles or letters that John wrote, and he also wrote the Gospel of John. And while exiled to the island of Patmos at the end of his life, that's where he received the revelation and wrote that book of prophecy. John was the disciple whom Jesus loved, so we know why he received some of the deepest revelations from God. 
This letter was likely written from Ephesus, where the Ephesian church was located, and to whom the book of Ephesians was written. Ephesus was the home base of Christianity in that region, and it would have been circulated among the churches in that region, this letter. So it was written late in John's life for sure, probably around AD 90. So the audience was definitely mature Christians to whom John had been a teacher and a shepherd or pastor for many decades. As for the context, because Ephesus was the philosophical center of the ancient Greek world, worldly teaching, which was false teaching, had entered into the church. The scriptural context is a part of the letter where John is explaining God's love and Christian love in general. He opens the section in verse 7 by saying, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Was actually a little song that we learned in Christian camp as a kid. And he adds in verse 8, the one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. Two other important verses prior to our scripture reading. Verse 11, beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Notice that last verse is conditional, based on works, and also notice that the word perfected, which can also be translated completed, is used there. So now that we've considered the speaker, audience, and context, we're better equipped to give an explanation. Let's break down this passage of Scripture. Verse 15, rereading it says, Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. Well, Jordan, I did some research of the word confess, and to help us get a better understanding of its true meaning as per God's intention for the reader, and I found out that in the Greek, it is the Strong's word entry G3670, and it's pronounced homologeo. So after spending a good amount of time in the study, I found it to be a deep word with a compound meaning. Now, it has four definitive uses in our English language. And those uses are, number one, to agree, number two, to concede, number three, to speak openly, and number four, to celebrate. As a demonstration, I ask everybody listening, let us plug these words in place of the word confess from the first half of verse 15. So it would read like this, whoever agrees that Jesus is the Son of God, whoever concedes that Jesus is the Son of God. Whoever speaks openly that Jesus is the Son of God. And finally, whoever celebrates that Jesus is the Son of God. So one key point of this exercise is to note that the word confess is a verb. Hence, in order for a Christian to perform, it requires work on our part. It's pretty obvious. A great example of this would be in the ever so famous and important scripture we find in Romans 10.9, which reads, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus says, Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Now that we have clarity on the definition of the word confess in the Greek, I believe we can better understand and then judge if God truly abides in us and we in him. That's a great point, Andy. I think uh, the key to getting the full meaning of scripture oftentimes is to do that sort of original Greek word study and to look at the many shades of meaning there's actually a whole translation called the Amplified Bible, which, you know, if you if you ever pick up that Bible and read it, every now and then they'll, they'll throw in 
four different definitions like that after a word to give you this the understanding and the sense that in Greek, this word has such rich meaning that we really can't get from English because of limitations of our language versus their language. It's fascinating. Right. And, and on that point, you know, we did a whole uh, study on the word abides as well. You know, the Greek word is mone, which is from a root word meaning to remain or to dwell. And some other places that it appears include John 14, 2, in my father's house are many dwelling places. That's a form of mone or abodes. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And John 14, 23, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word. This is Jesus speaking. And my father will love him, and we will come to him and make our abode, and that's mane again, with him. So moving on to um, verse 16, it reads, We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So what we learned in our study of Mane, which was, by the way, called The Way, the Truth, and the Life, that's a 20-minute Bible study if you're interested in checking that out in our archives, uh, accessible at motk.org, 20mbs.org, and many other places like our podcast archive. What we learned in that study is this concept of abiding in and abiding with, so in and with. John's Gospel teaches that God the Father abides in God the Son and that the Holy Spirit abides in those who receive God the Son. John also teaches that both God the Father and God the Son will abide with those who love God the Son, and that God the Son is preparing a future place where those who love him can abide with him and God the Father. And here we learn that abiding in love is abiding in God and God abiding in us. Thanks, Jordan. Those are great points. Now, the word abide can also be put into simple terms, I believe, as living with or living together. So when reading verse 16 again, let's try that exercise we did earlier by substituting the word abide with the words is living, okay? So I'm going to read that verse again, verse 16. We have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. And the one who is living in love is living in God, and God is living in him. Now, I'm not sure about you guys, but it feels so good and real to hear that verse in this way. I mean, it makes me immediately think of the book of James, and I think of James 4, 7 to 8, which reads, Submit or concede, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So we see in these verses, for our spiritually good actions towards God, there is a spiritually good reaction from him to us. It's simple harmony. Okay, so now moving on to verse 17. By this, love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. What do you make of that one, Andy? Okay, Jordan, so... When God abides in us, we are perfected or become the mature Christian. And as verse 17 states, being a mature Christian will then give us the confidence and I'm paraphrasing here, the peace of mind to serve God with joy in our hearts and a hop in our step. You know, the word tells us that the joy of the Lord is our strength. And we see that in Nehemiah 8:10. So one could probably say that without living a life in love with God, we're just immature and weak. 
And when we see it that way, you know, we have to determine that loving God is more than just looking at the finished work of the cross. No, it's also building a lifelong, intimate relationship with him. Yeah, I think that's uh, the part that jumped out at me. What jumped out at me was the, you know, confidence in the day of judgment. So essentially, John's saying there, if we live in Christian love, we can have confidence that we will be judged favorably. Or to put it in the, uh, in the terms of 1 Corinthians 3, you know, our works of love are fireproof. Um, and works of self, of course, are very flammable. They burn up at judgment. So, you know, also notice uh, when he says, by this, you know, by abiding in love, God abides in us and can produce these fireproof works of love through us because we are yielded to God. And then moving on Andy, to verse 18, it says, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment. And the one who fears is not perfected in love. This is the, the meat of the lesson. Amen. So, Jordan, it's possible that this fear is different from the fear in Proverbs. There is a fear of not making it to heaven, of course. Now, this fear exists because of a lack of spiritual understanding and a lack of knowledge concerning the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Now, a possible question by someone who fears in this way is, I believe in Jesus as my Savior, but will my sin send me to hell? Now, that is the common Arminian theological question to a lot of our brethren out there. And then the other fear is a godly, reverential fear that could only correctly exist in a Christian if he or she was studied and learned in the kingdom truths. For example, we look at Proverbs 9.10, which says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Now, this Christian might respond to the Arminian's question with an answer like, you can be a believer and then choose to habitually sin without remorse, which can then cause a Christian to forfeit their spiritual inheritance and miss out on being joint heirs with Jesus Christ for 1,000 years. I mean, just think of Jacob and Esau and the pot of stew. We all know that story. And I could support that answer when we look at Romans 8.15. You know, we have to understand that these people are probably misinformed Christians because of their Arminian theology, and we see that starting to invade the church today. But this was happening back then, too, during the time of the, the writers of the New Testament. They called them Judaizers or legalists. And they were telling the believers back then who were stable in just grace and also knowing that they should, once they had grace, live a righteous life, that they must still maintain the full letter of the law to receive everlasting life. So basically, Jordan, what they were saying, it was, it was faith plus works just to get entrance into heaven. They didn't understand, I guess, I, I don't know if you would say it was the uh, you know, an infiltrated attack of the enemy that was trying to cause confusion, or if it was more just, you know, them trying to go back and, and, and try to include the law. But either way, this wasn't the gospel of grace that we originally were taught uh, through Jesus Christ and also the apostles. Yeah, it's definitely the work of the evil one, because we have seen this recurring uh, among God's people, whether they were the were the Jews or whether they were uh, you know, Jews converting to Christianity, I should say, and trying to bring the law into grace. Or in modern times, I mean, you know, before Martin Luther, really, there was a long period of time, the so-called Dark Ages, when it was very works-based theology and sort of Martin Luther rediscovered 
you know, grace in the Bible by actually paying attention to those parts of the Bible and noticing it again. Right. But uh, it, 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 I think it's very unnatural, and um, maybe it's just our sin nature that God's unmerited favor doesn't sit well. So we always feel like we have to do something. And, you know, this, this of course, manifested in crazy ways, like people walking on their knees up, you know, hundreds of steps to get to the top of a, of a church or carrying boulders, pendants, all, all, these, all these concept, like we can somehow earn our way back into God's favor. And really the message of the gospel is no, you know, you, it doesn't matter what you do, even if you could climb to the top of Mount Olympus on your knees, you're, you're still not going to be good enough for God. The only one who was good enough was Jesus. And we have to just put our faith and trust in him and accept the unmerited favor of that. Yeah, and great points. And, you know, just to clarify before we move forward, yes, the Bible does teach about losing something precious. The Bible does teach about forfeiting something that we can give it back. But what that is is not everlasting life, which was promised in John 3.16. What God promises us is reward and entrance into the millennial kingdom, which is a whole nother day. Right. It's a thousand years of, of getting an opportunity to rule and reign with Christ back on this earth, back here. We go to heaven in a rapture, and if we're worthy enough, and there's no way of tricking God because he will give, be a fair judge, he's going to allow us to come back here and, and serve him in some type of capacity. So going back to you know that argument between you know Arminians, I would say that it's really not far-fetched that they're not, they're not quite distant from the Catholics, meaning that they believe in a covenant of works to maintain everlasting life. So the sad part of it is that what they're doing is they're putting the cross to an open shame by saying that our sin will end, end up putting us into the lake of fire where Satan, the false prophet, and the beast are, meaning that what Jesus did on the cross wasn't enough to keep us saved. So it's just something interesting that um, I'm glad you brought up, and um, I think we all need to, to consider. Yeah, I think you know for new listeners or anyone who's still confused by this, the, the shorthand that we always use, which is a great way to think of it, is the gift versus the prize. So without getting into a tangent on that, we've done whole episodes on it. Just run that down in your Bible. What's the difference between the word gift and the word prize in the Bible? And you'll start to see the difference, right? The gift, you can never earn a gift. You would, you would never pay for a gift. You know, Jesus paid for the gift and gave it to you. The prize, though, you know, God, God wants you to run, as Paul says, as if you're in a race and earn a prize. So th that's the distinction there. And confusing those two has led to all sorts of schisms in the church and misunderstandings and you know, uh, loss of the doctrine of assurance and all that stuff that we talk about. Excellent points, Jordan. So if you can, for our listeners, could you help us understand what the word fear in this verse actually means? Yeah, I mean, I think you did a good job of explaining the nuance between different types of fear in terms of reverence for God. If you get into the Greek word again, and this is a this particular passage is is just rich with uh, Greek word studies for those of us who like those things. Um, the Greek word here is uh, it's pronounced phobos, but if you look at it written in uh, in Romanized letters, we would read it as phobos, and you can immediately see it's where we get our word phobia. For example, claustrophobia, fear of small spaces. Acrophobia, fear of heights. Arachnophobia, as that uh, cheesy 80s movie, right? Fear of spiders, right? And yes, there's actually a word for the fear of the wrath of God called theophobia. So, phobos means fear and also dread or terror. But what sort of terror? Obviously, as we're saying, not hell terror, not fear of the lake of fire or terror of the lake of fire, as you, as you explained, Andy. Um, you know, when I think of that word, I think of Hebrews 10.31, and actually, it starts in verse 30. 
It says, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. That's the uh, New King James translation. And that word fearful is a form of the word fabas, faberos, meaning, you know, uh, again, to fear. It, it's a terrifying thing in the NASB to fall into the hands of God. And this, of course, speaks of judgment. So how do we know it isn't just the lost man who needs to fear? Well, listen to what Paul says about the judgment seat of Christ, which we know is a judgment of believers only. 2 Corinthians 5.10 For we, speaking to the believers from the church at Corinth, must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may be recompensed for his deeds, or his works, in the body, according to what he has done, whether good or bad. And then verse 11, Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, and that's Fabas again, we persuade men, but we are made manifest to God. And I hope that we are made manifest also in your consciences. So Andy, going back to your previous uh, discussion there, I thought that was very interesting. And I, and I wanted to ask you, you know, just to further that discussion, why do you think this uh, Armenian theology persists? Why are so many people afraid that they will lose their salvation? What's that all about? Well, Jordan, that's an amazing question. And besides, probably the main reason is what I mentioned earlier. It's 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 kind of and and you touched upon it as well. It's kind of human nature for us to want to go back when we look at our constant sin and say to ourselves, "Wow, even though we're saved, man, we're we're constantly failing God. There's there's no way I'm going to be able to make it to heaven." You know, it's kind of a fleshly mindset to think that way, and um, because we just cannot understand you know, God's sovereignty and how, you know, he predestined us. So number one, you know, keep in mind that the Christian church for about 1500 years was predominantly Catholic, uh, a works-based salvation type of religion, you know, up until, like you mentioned earlier, Martin Luther, when, you know, the protest against the church changed things and we started going towards grace and away from works-based salvation. So, but I will say this, if you don't understand the kingdom truths, then the Bible will absolutely be confusing and contradictory on this point. I mean, if you consider Philippians 2.12, Paul tells the believers at, at the church to obey God and to work out their salvation with fear and trembling. Now, that's so easy to misinterpret that as saying that your salvation from hell is not complete, so you have to be afraid, Right. But we know that phobos or phobia is a fear of a different judgment for believers. Now, the very next verse makes it clear. It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And God would not be at work in the unsaved. So the fear and trembling is not of hell, but it's a fear and trembling of failing God, our Father in heaven, and then having to face 1,000 years of punishment for it. Yeah, those are great points, Andy. So just to recap quickly as we come to a close here, today we learned, one, that when we confess Jesus Christ, God wants to live in us and through us. Two, that if we prevent that from happening by putting our will above God's will, we should fear the judgment that awaits us. And three, that the cure for that fear is love, because love is of God. There is no fear in love, because love is God abiding in us. And that is our lesson. Until next time, everybody, we leave you with the words of the Apostle Paul. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We love you.
Thanks for joining us for another 20-minute Bible study. Special thanks to the family of Pastor Gary T. Whipple and to the Abundant Life Worship Center for the music for our show. I'm Steve Zioli. Until next time, may the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. of the Kingdom Incorporated.